Coming up on the green from Delaware Public Media. Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long is making her pitch to be Delaware's next governor. I am able to bring a unique collaborative leadership style to this state that is absolutely necessary at this time. We sit down with Bethany Hall Long to discuss her bid for governor. I'm your host, Kyle McKinnon. And more Americans feel socially isolated and lonely in wake of the pandemic. We examine why and how to address rising isolation in the U.S. 2024 is also a leap year, meaning an extra day on February 29th. We talk with so-called leaplings about how they celebrate their birthday every four years. It's all next on The Green, where Delaware gets tuned in to a first state of mind. But first, the news from NPR. Welcome to this week's edition of The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Kyle McKinnon, filling in for Tom Byrne this week. Races in the 2024 elections are starting to come into focus, and one that's drawing significant attention in Delaware is the race for governor. Incumbent Democrat John Carney is term-limited, leaving the office up for grabs. On the Democratic side, two-term Newcastle County Executive Matt Meyer was the first to jump into the race in June. He was followed by Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long in September, with former DENREC Secretary and National Wildlife CEO Colin Amara still contemplating a run. And Hall Long's campaign got off to a sluggish start when she paused fundraising to examine past campaign finance reports. She would end up amending some of those reports to reflect what the campaign says was $300,000 in loans being misreported for expenditures between 2016 and 2022. This week, Hall Long stopped by Delaware Public Media's Dover studio and sat down with Tom Byrne to discuss those initial issues with her campaign, how she's positioning herself with voters, and where she stands on some key issues. I do want to start by talking about the start of your campaign last fall, Yes. which uh, just over two weeks after announcing your bid for governor, you had to stop fundraising while examining some past campaign finance reports that led to an audit of your campaign that... Uh, found over $300,000 in loans misreported as expenditures between 2016 and 2022. You wound up amending campaign finance reports to reflect the results of that audit. This is our first chance to really talk to you directly about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened here? How did this wind up happening over this period of time? You know, having been a public servant for over 22 years and as a nurse, actually being the first nurse governor candidate in America um, and being the second woman candidate, um, I am thrilled to be running and really working to make sure Delaware is the best place to live, work, and raise a family. And in doing so, um, you know, I've been very open and transparent. And last year when we transferred from lieutenant governor to governor candidacy, it was great. And we have still lots of support and endorsements. And and we literally internally, I took it on myself instead of waiting and doing a report later on, we internally found that we had miscategorized items as expenses and did not put them also as a loan. So we fixed it, we found it, we reported it, and everything is out, and it's public, and it's searchable, and we're really pleased to be moving forward. Again, this is something that internally, because of my nature, being a nurse, you find an issue, you fix it, you report it. And we did that early. It was something we could have waited uh, to do later on, but uh, we figured we would get clarification. And I'm really thrilled to say that uh, we have a strong campaign and really excited to be up in the polls up to uh, 16 points ahead. So 
you do understand, though, why there's been some questions about this issue, right? I mean, $300,000 is a pretty large number. It happened over multiple election cycles. Personal credit cards were involved. And it was reporting by the News Journal and our fellow NPR member station, WHYY, that some campaign staff left when this issue first arose. And there was some talk of you dropping out of the race. So let me ask specifically about the last two things. Did any staff leave because of concerns over this? And did you ever consider dropping out of the campaign? Never have I considered um, not being Delaware's next governor. I've spent 22 years preparing and being prepared and having the vision. You know, when you ask a nurse to get a job done, she gets it done. And I can say to you full right that the funding, I am so into public service that I use my own personal credit cards to cover expenses that are legitimate. They're all publicly served searchable. So we identified the issue, we corrected it, and we have moved on. It is publicly there. And again, unlike my millionaire opponents who are putting funding of their own money in, uh, I'm not um, a hardworking nurse who gets things accomplished. And my record in Delaware, I think, speaks for itself. And so I'm thrilled to be moving forward. I'm excited about the race. And I have a fantastic team around me. And I'm delighted to have the endorsement of our governor, our leaders in the House, and many of my colleagues. And so I'm excited today to talk to you about issues that matter to everyday Delawareans. But just to clarify, did you lose staff at the time that this first arose? Um, I did not lose any staff. My entire staff and my official office has remained the same. And I had a person who helped me get launched with my announcement. And that individual did transition to another opportunity. Um, but those opportunities come. Anybody who's run a campaign will tell you you have different people who come and go. But to me, the most important thing is making sure that we move forward and make Delaware the best place to live, work, and raise a family. So you did talk about transparency with this issue. Um, we mentioned there was an audit that was done by your campaign. That audit says, according to your campaign, no wrongdoing or violations found in the audit. But you haven't released the audit. And this, several groups, including some government transparency, good government groups have said you should release it. Why not release the report for the, for the greatest level of transparency possible? Can I share with you, again, um, I'm not uh, skirting this issue. I am telling you straight up, please have the public go to the searchable campaign finance review location in campaign finance reporting. I am thrilled to tell you all the information is there. We did an internal review. This was not something brought on by the outside. Mm -hmm. We could have waited and just filed reports in January. We were really pleased to be able to get clarification. Again, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not self-funding my campaign. I had certainly used some of my personal credit cards, which are legal and legit expenses. And they're all listed for the public. They are searchable. They're available. And I'm just delighted to tell you that that issue is not an issue, that we are really working hard up and down the state from Claymont to Sebbyville to make Delaware the best place to live, work, and raise a family. But if there is an audit, and there is, there is an audit, why not add into that? Because you said the, the audit There was an no internal wrong. review, an right. internal but, review. But why not release that? The, it's there. It is no, there. The no, internal but, but, review but there is, is difference. there. It, the internal review is not in the campaign finance records. I mean, that's that's something separate. They, right? It was done by a separate company. The internal review is there. The internal review, we have everything is public. Everything is public. Everything is searchable, and we've moved forward with the campaign. But, but, but not the, the, the audit. Where, where would we find the audit itself? There was an internal review that was done. It was an internal review that was completed. Right. All the information is there and is public. Okay. 
so that you, you believe there's no audit to release to the public? There, the internal review, it's all public. It is present. It is there, and it's documented, and it's available to anyone who goes to the public items. Okay. Uh, one last question on this. Uh, are you at all concerned that this will hamper your campaign, either in voter confidence or in fundraising? At this juncture, you do trail Matt Meyer and potential opponent Colin O'Mara in fundraising. Are you concerned that the pause in fundraising last fall puts you behind a little bit and you have some work to do to kind of put yourself in a position you want to be in in this campaign? Money has never um, purchased Delaware voters. Uh, I can tell you straight up that we had a little pause in the fundraising because that was a personal decision. That was not something that was forced. Again, we did an internal personal decision to review. We have done a great job in fundraising. In the last month of our campaign, we brought in $171,000. We're not self-funders. If you go in and take a look at others who have entered the race, they've donated over, they've loaned themselves over half a million dollars each. I am a person who represents the everyday Delawarean. I understand our business leaders, our small entrepreneurs. I understand the healthcare system. And I also was an educator and a mom and a nurse. We get things accomplished. That's what Delaware voters believe in. And you know what? It is not about the funds. It is about being able to take care of Delaware. And having led this nation as a Lieutenant Governor Association uh, chairperson, being second in command, already, I am ready on day one uh, to lead this state. And that's what voters want. They want leadership. And I have the leadership. I know how to bring people together. I know how to get answers to problems addressed really quickly. And I hope we have the opportunity to discuss some of those today in your interview. Well, that is what we are going to do right now. So let me ask you a question I've asked previously to other candidates. Um, you know, Usually there's this kind of boilerplate question of like, why are you running for governor? But I want to change the focus a little bit here. Um, and specifically ask what you feel would differentiate you from your current Democratic primary opponent, Matt Meyer, your potential primary opponent, Colin O'Mara, and the current governor, John Carney. What would make a Governor Hall Long different? You know, Governor Hall Long has the vision to work for everyday Delawareans uh, to really make it the best place to live, work, and raise a family, and uh, having a bold plan, an innovative plan for small business, large business, understanding education that will provide an opportunity for our children, career to college, no matter the zip code, and understanding healthcare in the workforce. Let's face this, I would be the second woman governor of Delaware and the first nurse governor in America individuals recognize the need for unity at this time. I am able to bring a unique collaborative leadership style to this state that is absolutely necessary at this time. Having been second in command, being ready on day one is absolutely critical. In these times when families have cost of living issues, we need a leader who understands the state and the fact that I have been endorsed by a number of elected officials in the arena means that we will be able to get in a room, accomplish activities, make the best policies. You know, over my 20 years of service, I sponsored over a thousand bills. And of those pieces of legislation, it matters to have that experience and vision. It's easy to talk, it's easy to put something on print, but I know the state and I know the budget and I know the buckets and where we need to move forward. And what makes me unique, I know this state. I was raised in Sussex. I was public educated. I was first generation college graduate. I know the struggles. I know families. I'm the undercover lieutenant governor now who goes in the community 
who really gets what Delawareans need. And so whether I'm dealing with a new mom, a small business owner, an individual struggling with mental health and substance use, or the CEO of a big bank, I know how to lead Delaware, and I am ready on day one, and I have the vision. I think listening to that experience, I hear a lot of what would differentiate you from Matt Meyer, maybe Colin O'Mara. What do you feel differentiates you from John Carney? You know, Governor Carney and I have had a long-term, great working relationship. And, you know, the governor and I have different backgrounds, um, and those backgrounds, you know, distinguish us. You know, and we saw some of those things distinguish with myself and the governor over the past couple years. But at the end of the day, you know, I really do value that he's endorsed me. Um, I really do value that um, we are able to lead the state strongly through the pandemic. But again, you know, there are differences sometimes in policy, and I've had those with our governor, and it's okay um, because that is what real leaders do. You were a part of the legislature for, yeah. for a period of time, and obviously still is. Yep. Lieutenant mm-hmm. Governor spent a lot of time at I'm legislative the obviously, of the Senate. Exactly. So it seems in recent years the legislative tension in Dover has not just been a tension between Republicans and Democrats, but there's also a tension within the Democratic Party between more progressive Democrats, more moderate centrist Democrats. Where do you see yourself on that continuum, and what approach would you take toward creating and moving an agenda in this landscape where you're maybe trying to work three or more different constituencies, Republicans, centrist Democrats, progressive Democrats, and maybe even others? You know, it's really important to have the leadership style of collaborative and the ability to collaborate and to get to results. You give a nurse a job, she gets results. I can tell you the strength that I have and how I was able to get over a thousand bills passed as a sponsor and co-sponsor was being able to get people in a room and to get an outcome. For example, this year, retiree health care. I chaired that. We have state retiree health care. They're not going to have Medicare Advantage now. That involved bringing together Republicans, Democrats, various stakeholders, union leaders, and others. We were able to get a resolve. That is what Delawareans deserve. They need a collaborative leader, no matter the issue, whether it's health, housing, whether it's education, whether it's food on their table, gas prices, whatever it might be, we have to be able to come together problem solve. And that is the expertise that I uniquely, I uniquely bring. Other folks have never voted on a bill, never had to write a bill. They have not chaired the pardons board. They've never been involved in issues that affect justice in our state. Those are very distinguishing factors. And collaborative leadership is essential. So let's talk about some specific issues. And we'll start with probably the biggest one, which is the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, Current administration has has taken, I think it's fair to say, a more cautious, pragmatic approach, emphasizing kind of things like one-time spending, so-called budget smoothing, mm-hmm. which is you know setting aside dollars to hedge against economic mm-hmm. downturns in the future. What would your guiding budgetary principles be? Would you continue that kind of approach, or do you see a different way to making the budget work best? Yeah, having been at the table, you know, and again, that's a distinguishing factor. You know, it's easy to talk about, you know, having the four little buckets of the county, which is land use, sewers, and projects like that. The bigger budget, which is everything from agriculture, corrections, health care. I know the budget. I've been on the budget committees. I've been on the capital bond committee. I've served. Looked when we were in a crisis. I have the leadership. We're going into fiscal times that are going to be constrained. Mm -hmm. I have the demonstrated leadership to understand where we need to move funds and how we have to do it. We have to be fiscally solvent. And not to get into the weeds with the listening audience, because I appreciate our listeners. They work hard. Your listeners want fiscal responsibility. 
your listeners want someone who understands what it's like to worry about food on the table, to understand what it's like to worry about being able to pay for their college tuition if they choose to go to college, or what's going to happen next month when it comes to the time to pay the utilities. I get it. I have been raised among working families in this state. I will ensure a budget that provides for all Delawareans and makes us innovative. You look at someone's budget, you see their priorities. And you know, my priorities are going to be jobs, education, and the health care and the workforce that we need in the state. And under all of that is issues of equity through our community. So making sure we leave no one behind. You know, and we're going to deliver on education funding, reformulating the funding formula, and we're going to make sure, absolutely positive, that we have early education started in the state. It is critical. So you've mentioned a few things I wanted to, to jump into a little bit, and we'll, we'll start with, I think, what may be the biggest challenge facing the next governor, and that is the cost of health care. And you've, you've alluded to this already, but I'll try to frame it for mm-hmm. our audience. Healthcare costs account for nearly 40% of the operating budget growth, with the state paying close to $2 billion on Medicaid and insurance plans for state employees and retirees. That's a $200 million increase from FY24. This week, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you and the Retiree Healthcare Benefits Advisory Subcommittee Mm -hmm. outlined recommendations to attack the state retiree piece of that puzzle I just mentioned. Uh, And one notable recommendation was taking a switch to Medicare Advantage off the table. So I'll start there. Why was it important to take Medicare Advantage off the table? Because the Carney administration pushed pretty hard for that Mm -hmm. for a long time. You're saying it's time to move away from it. Why? Yeah. Um, we, uh, the state retirees have put a moral obligation working hard for our communities. They protect us on our roadways. They taught our children. They uh, protected and delivered our food. They delivered for Delawareans. And they had a moral obligation and contract. And when we took behind the scenes and we studied the choices, whether Medicare Advantage, health savings account, it was really clear that we needed to what we call grandfather in. Um, make sure that our current retirees keep the Medicfill plan that they were promised. You know, I am not for Medicare Advantage. Um, we are going to be looking at alternatives. You know, I'm a professor, teach doctoral health policy. You have foundational things with access quality of care, and you hit it spot on. We are going to be looking at a new funding opportunity, perhaps, working with the General Assembly and the governor. Nothing is done in isolation. It is mm. a team effort. You have a stakeholder panel that we brought together. My co-chairs, Representative Bombach, Senator Townsend, came up with a roadmap that the General Assembly and the State Employee Benefits Committee can consider. And ideally, they will make sure, as we roll this out, that the new funding opportunities for what is called OPEB liability, it's Mm -hmm. a fancy long term for other pension benefits, we're going to come up with a new formula. So to get away from the technicality, we have to make sure and do better. So I will, I will dig into the weeds a little bit on the funding piece of it that you mentioned, because uh, it's, it's talking about a, a 1% contribution to the general fund from the prior year to that uh, OPEB fund, and then increasing pre-funding there mm-hmm. incrementally mm-hmm. each fiscal year until it reaches 10%. Mm-hmm. And now I understand for a lot of people, that's a lot of numbers, mm-hmm. but it is, in fact, a, a big chunk of money. And I guess the question I have is, what kind of drag does that type of thing put on the budget in terms of all the other priorities 
it's being fiscally solvent. It's being smart and it's being uh, visionary to the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am going to be a governor that doesn't avoid problems. Um, I see problems as possibilities, and we have to make Delaware strong. If we continue to not address this issue, it's going to have an implication for your children, our grandchildren. It has to be addressed. We have a wonderful window of opportunity right now where we are paying close attention and we're having conversation. We have to make choices. And right now, for Delaware to be strong, we have to have a strong health system. We haven't talked about employee. You've got employee health care. You've got current retirees. And for future hires, you know, future hires are going to know that they're going to have to pay in to their retirement health care. It's just that simple, right? So we have to make sure. And again, it's not to me a drag. It's a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And to pre-fund and to put the funds in, we address this with the pension issue that we have with our state retirees in the past. It's a similar model to pre-fund and to really be addressing the liability. We can no longer ignore this issue. However, to Governor Carney and other cabinet members who are very um, attuned, obviously, our cabinet secretaries around the fiscal responsibilities, there will be some tough choices that are going to have to be made, and they'll have to be done in arm in arm with the General Assembly. And that's why I have the unique experience that single singles me out from the other candidates to be able to do this. So you did mention kind of the other piece of this equation, which is kind of the benefits side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, how confident are you following this plan that there will not be more that needs to be done on the benefit side down the road. There is some mm-hmm. some changes on the benefit side in terms of mm-hmm. how many years you have to work mm-hmm. for the state to, to get that 100% vesting on premiums and things like that. Um, it, are you pretty confident that you could avoid any harsher benefit changes to current employees, retirees, or, or anybody else? Bottom line, we want to have the best health system because we want to be competitive with Maryland and Pennsylvania and New mm. Jersey. Like, we have to make sure our teachers are here in Delaware and our nurses are here and our construction workers and our good union-paying jobs are here in Delaware. We have to make sure of that. Benefit eligibility uh, is something that is always a negotiable thing. I mean, your benefits may change some, but I am confident if we start doing funding, design plan and eligibility changes, we will be able to tackle this issue. It's a slow bake. It's not going to happen overnight. However, I can assure you that it will be addressed and it's not going to be, you know, something that is ignored. Um, And it's something that we have a window of opportunity right now to absolutely address. And we're honoring our process with our retirees. Um, I think if you listened in yesterday, you heard them say, you know, that the process was one that we set forth an unprecedented public opportunity. As a governor, that is the style of leadership I have. People are heard. We may not always agree, but we get things done in an open, transparent way. So let's talk about education, because that's obviously going to be another key issue for the next governor. Uh, The lawsuit over education funding equity led to a report on state education funding last fall, which I'm sure you were aware of recommended the state spend an additional $600 million to $1.1 billion per year. Uh, that translates to increases of 27 to 46% above current per-pupil spending. It doesn't seem like anything's going to happen with that immediately this particular legislative session under Governor Carney, meaning the ball will be in your court should you be elected in November. What are your thoughts on this report and what it's recommending and how you will use that to shape your education agenda, specifically on the education spending side. Listen, I've been an educator for three decades, an active educator. Um, I educate the educators. You know, I'm educating, you know, nurses, and I'm also educating those who work in policy and my hat at the University of Delaware. And as a mom, 
of a child who had learning disabilities and had a lot of different challenges. I understand education. I understand the public sector. I understand the private sector. And I understand our public charter schools. It is paramount that we have equity. It is really important. And anyone who knows me knows that I have totally committed my 30 years as a public health nurse to addressing the needs of our communities and the brown and black community and working through the community. I'm the only candidate in this race who went to Frankfurt Elementary and Indian River High School who understands the challenges of public education and have always been fortunate to have worked really closely with our teachers. I can tell you that we will have to continue, and it's not just about money, it's not just about schools that are built, but we are not as good until we address all children. Every child under the Hall Long gubernatorial leadership will have equal opportunity no matter your zip code. Children in poverty, children in other areas should not be denied a solid education. And so we're going to be looking at how do we place teachers? We should be funding and paying our best qualified teachers the funds to be into the inner city school or the school in the western Sussex where there's maybe some more challenges. This is a statewide issue. A lot of times folks, people want to focus this just on the city of Wilmington. This is not. This is a statewide equity issue. And that's why yours truly here has been a Hunt Fellow. I've been working diligently leading our early education initiative across the state, working with uh, Rodell partners and others to say we must do birth to five. I'm a problem solver, right? Problem's been identified that we don't have equity in outcomes of our children. If we have early education, birth to five, which we can fund and we'll figure out, which is universal childcare in the business owner's eyes. So not only are you helping the employer, but you're going to be helping these children. So when they arrive at kindergarten, they're equally prepared. And it is an important thing. Do you know we have 1,825, think about this, 1,825 days where 90% of a child's brain is developed. And to the listeners, what that means is birth to three. Mm -hmm. We have got to start earlier in our educational outcomes and equity to make sure all children, all children have the same skills and they address issues of trauma and everything that goes along with it. So education is a big deal in this state. It's a big deal to me. Can can the spending though go up? I mean, I mean when you look at that report, uh, that, re- that report is saying a, a significant amount yeah. more needs to be spent K to 12. Right. It, given some of the other budget issues we've talked mm-hmm. about, is it possible to walk and chew gum at the same time, deal with mm-hmm. healthcare costs, but also in some way, shape or form face the kind of dollars this report is talking about. Is is that something you're going to endeavor to look at is how do you find more ways to direct mm-hmm. more money per pupil into K through 12 education uh, and, and, and find a funding system mm-hmm. that, that makes that work? Well, we're going to have to reformulate and look at the funding system. I mean, it's an older system. It's almost seven decades of age. We have to really look at that. And I absolutely, you know, as a, a per- person who is a researcher and, uh, you know, understands reports, we have to honor and look at those data points and really assess. I concur that we really do need to reevaluate how we're spending funds in our education system. And I am committed um, and if it means a few more hard budget choices and shifting some other funds around to get it right, to up our education funding some, we should do that. We should be looking at that. But at the same time, 
I am one who also knows that your listeners are fiscally responsible people. They're working on a budget. We have to look internally as well. Where are things that we perhaps can shift around internally? What can we analyze? What other programs can we have put in place? But to me, it is absolutely critical. Education is the foundation to everything. One other issue I do want to hit on before we wrap up is affordable housing. It is obviously a mounting issue, one that plays out in different ways in different areas across the state. What are your priorities for attacking affordable housing and making it more available? Housing is a right. Housing is a right. Housing is very important. You know, I got involved in politics, taking care of mentally ill homeless veterans. You know, my husband's a military veteran. Homelessness and uh, challenges are real. It affects me. I go out every week on the streets of Delaware, undercover lieutenant governor. Um, And as a governor, I'm never going to lose that capacity to understand this state. Every third door I go to is a child or a family who just is a paycheck away. Housing is a basic right. And when I say that, under my leadership as the governor, having chaired in the Senate and being on the House committees that addressed housing, we have to invest in infrastructure. We have to make sure to not just talk a talk. It's easy to talk a talk, but having the leadership, bringing to the table not only the Home Builder Association, the Delaware State Housing Authority, our alliances, we have to change some of the laws. I know now there's a movement and initiative to bring some folks together. As I indicated, I'm of a collaborative leadership style. We have to bring community, family, thought leaders together. We need to make changes at our local levels and our county levels. Right now, county policies, state policy needs to be merged some. Oregon, uh, Montana, some of these other states are looking at creative changes to the local ordinances and regs that they put on our counties to make it not so difficult. Right now, it's really difficult to build and to construct houses for our nurses, for our teachers, for our firefighters. You know, we have to have that responsive system. It's critical. We have to have the housing stock. We have to look at the regulations and the codes. And we have to figure this out. And we're a small state. We're the size of a county. And as the next governor of the state, I will make sure that housing continues to be a top priority uh, for those listening in. That's Lieutenant Governor Bethany Hall Long, 2024 candidate for governor with our Tom Byrne earlier this week. And stay with us. The Green continues in a moment with a look at the growing issue of loneliness and social isolation in the U.S. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media, and I'm Kyle McKinnon. More than one-fifth of Americans over the age of 18 say they often or always feel lonely or socially isolated. And in the age of smartphones, social media, and streaming, it's easy to see why Americans are more socially isolated. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy said recently that solving our country's isolation is one of our generation's greatest challenges and that loneliness in America is a full-blown epidemic. But if loneliness is an epidemic, how do you treat it? I spoke with author and journalist Anna Goldfarb, also known as the Friendship Explainer, to learn more about it and the impact of social isolation. 
Anna Goldfarb, the friendship explainer. More than ever before, people are spending their time alone. That's according to various data sources. And, and just speaking anecdotally, I, I feel like I see it everywhere. As in, you know, people are lonely or longing, trying to get out of themselves or latch onto something of meaning. I see it at the, the gym, coffee shops, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm curious what you make of that notion and what you're seeing and, and why we might be seeing people more isolated than in previous years. Well, you don't have to look very far or deeply. I mean, just think of how you spent your last weekend. I spent my last weekend watching Love is Blind Sweden, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and like, did I see friends? Did I go out? Um, we have so much competing for our attention, more than ever. We are not bored. If anything, like, I know that there's a lot of studies showing that, um, you know, social engagement has declined pretty steadily since the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it's plummeted. Trust in our government, in our news organizations, in our religious communities has plummeted. We live in a deeply dysfunctional, fractured society. And along with that is unlimited entertainment from the internet <laughs> unlimited choices of what to watch and what to spend your time doing that doesn't require other people we just have a really interesting cauldron brewing of deep distrust in others and unlimited entertainment <laughs> for very low cost so it's easy to see why we got here, how we got here. We, you know, social media has really splintered our community, our idea of community. You know, um, what gets the most engagement online is what's the, what's the most controversial. And I think that's really impacted our psyche as a culture of feeling more distrustful of our neighbors, feeling like... Are we going to get scammed? Are people, are people out to get us? Like, you know, I think there's just, there's just a real air of distrust and it's never been easier to fill your time with things that don't require other people. That's really interesting. Um, and just to piggyback off that, when we zoom out and look at the contributing factors, you mentioned social media there, but there's, there's a lot, you know, there's the effect that the pandemic had and is still having, again, social media and, and technology media messaging and idealizations uh it kind of goes on almost even remote work has changed the game and how and when uh and where people spend their time so it can make it really hard to essentially consistently put yourself out there get out there be in that kind of you know social rhythm at least but could you break that down a little bit more though in terms of the factors that are creating this widespread isolation well a lot of them are sociological like just our generation, younger generations tend to marry later when they're older, they're more educated. They tend to have a lot of friends from different areas of their life where they don't know each other. They have, people have deep histories with people from school, from work, but the people from your school and your work don't know each other. There's no cohesion. There's very little cohesion, I should say. This is what researchers call a 
postmodern society where it resembles a spoke of a wheel. We're in the middle and then you have all these branches zooming out from us of our interests, our hobbies, our childhood friends, our work friends. We tend to move around with our work more. We work more temporary jobs for shorter times. Like we're not like our grandpa, my grandpa worked for you know, four years at wherever, whatever he did. I don't remember grandpa, but he had a lot more cohesion. <laughs> he saw the same people every day, year in, year out. And that is just not the reality for most people today. They have very little social cohesion. And what that does is it creates more pressure for each individual to prop up their social network with no help. We have to generate reasons. We have to self-generate reasons to keep in touch with the people in our life because we don't have something gluing us in place the way that previous generations did. You know, my grandparents were part of a, their synagogue. They were involved with their religious community. And I don't belong to a religious organization. Um, that was a huge part of their social life. They didn't have to plan it. They didn't have to reach out to people. Let's all get together. You know, but these organizations did that for us. But when you when you don't invest your time in those kinds of organizations, we have to generate those reasons. And that's the pressure that we feel. We think about, I should reach out to my old roommate. I haven't talked to her. I should reach out to my best friend from high school. I haven't talked to her. We have to generate reasons. And then we have this crushing guilt of, am I doing it enough? I haven't reached out enough. You know, you see your friend on social media. Should I reach out? Should I not reach out? Other generations never had to deal with this. <laughs> this is brand new territory. Um, we have unlimited selection of who we can be friends with, but we also can leave these relationships like with very little friction. So it's it's the beauty and the burden of modern friendship that we can. It's so hyper fluid. Like you can find these pockets of people that are so deeply into what you're into, but they're not part of your your social fabric. They're not part of your life in the same way that other generations had to had to figure out a way to find commonality. If you're putting yourself out there socially and, and making those connections or wanting to make those connections, it doesn't have to be this overwhelming, this person has got to be the person. This is ha this has to be um, you know, the relationship will be my best friend for the rest of my life. It doesn't, you know, if we go in without those expectations and just a, you know, low low key or 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 low st low standards essentially, just going to have a fun time, that can really make a difference uh and take that pressure off of ourselves, right? Yeah, and it's it's a difference between thinking I want friends to call me or check in on me versus I want to help people I admire and love achieve their dreams and live and live a full life. How can I help the people that I admire feel great about themselves? And that's a different our culture doesn't look at friendships that way. I think friendships is like a collectible. Like you have your shelf of friends, you have your lineup of friends, you roll deep, you have your squad. But what actually feels better is to approach someone and say, what, what's important to you? How can I help? You know, um, this is why accountability buddies are such a wise strategy because you're identifying a goal. You're identifying a reason outside of yourself of why you should maintain contact with 
a, with a with a cherished friend, and that is what I'm hoping people will see that our society isn't going to give us reasons to connect. They're not going to have these this outside force creating opportunities for us. It has to come from us, but that's also an opportunity for us to achieve things that are meaningful to us with with other people that where the goal is meaningful to them too. And so it takes the pressure off of like, well, when are we going to get together again? It's like, well, we're both working towards something that's important to us. And I want to help. That's that's the way through. That is the way to cut through and to not make it so much in your own head about me, what I need. It's how can I help my friends with what they need? Where can we align? Where can we help each other? And, you know, oh, you're in the turtle? Well, let's start a turtle chapter. Let's go to the turtle convention. You know, like it could be anything. But that, that's the opportunity that this broken, dysfunctional society has given us is, yes, we are, we need to create reasons. And it, just knowing a little information about why people choose who they do, every friendship needs a clear and compelling about. Every friendship needs a clear and compelling about. And abouts can change. They can be outdated or they can be absent. And that really unlocks a lot about why you're seeing what you're seeing, why some friends don't reply to your text messages, why some friendships fade away, and why friend, some friendships have endured because the about is so compelling to both people that they'll make time for it. They'll tell their spouse, you're on your own for dinner Tuesday. I'm going to go see Jocelyn because we're in a yoga class together and we both are really into yoga and this is important to me and it's important to her and we're doing it together. Like you need a reason. My thanks to journalist and author Anna Goldfarb for joining me this week on The Green. And we wrap up the show next with Enlighten Me. With 2024 being a leap year, we hear from some Delawareans about life as a leap day baby. You're listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media. Thanks for spending time with us this week on The Green. I'm Kyle McKinnon, sitting in for Tom Byrne. Next week, there's an extra day tacked onto the end of February. It's known as Leap Day, a necessary calendar quirk that pops up every four years. But just like every other day of the year, thousands of babies are born on Leap Day, which puts them in the unusual position of only having a birthday every four years. In this week's edition of Enlighten Me, Delaware Public Media's Rachel Sawicki talks with Delawareans about life as a Leap Day baby. I love it. I think it's so unique, and I love that fact about me now compared to, I think when I was young, I was like, gosh, like, I'm just weird. Like, why can't, I can't even be born on, on a correct day. Like, <laughs> why? That is a common sentiment among Leap Day babies like Middletown resident Brooke Bowman. She will be 28 this year, seven in leap years, and says the date becomes more special to her with time. But before you can grow to appreciate it, you need to understand it. And even for Leap Day babies like Middletown resident Ellen Green, an admissions coordinator at MOT Charter School, it's not always clear. Why does it have 30 days? Why does it only have 28? Why does it have 29? These are things I don't know. 
So here's how it works. It takes the Earth 365.2422 days to make a full trip around the sun, just 0.2422 days longer than the typical calendar year. But over the centuries, that extra fraction of a day would add up. Seasons wouldn't fall in the same months every year, and farmers would have a difficult time growing crops, which could affect food supplies. So astronomers and mathematicians added an extra day every four years, except on centennial years not divisible by 400, like the years 1700, 1800, and 1900, etc., and declared the problem solved. But for the modern Leap Day baby, their birthday can be an enigma. Consider Lauren Hawkins, a stay-at-home mom in Middletown. She will be 32 or 8 in leap years this year. She says as a kid, it was confusing for her to understand why her birthday only came every four years. But now it's something people remember her for. And she sees it as cause for additional celebration when there is no 29th of February. Growing up, I always felt sad like on years when I didn't have a real birthday. But now I kind of feel like I'm more excited on the years when I don't have a real birthday because then I just celebrate it for the whole month versus like one day. (laughs) So I feel like that's kind of changed as I've gotten older. Adelaide Gordy hasn't gotten that far yet. The sixth grader at Gunning Bedford Middle School in Middletown is turning 12 or three in leap years. So it's still a bit hard to wrap her head around and worse yet, explain to classmates. Some people are like, like, oh my God, I'm older than you. And all this other stuff about them being older than me, and I'm only three years old in middle school. And it gets a little bit annoying sometimes, but I don't really mind it. And her mom, Arista Gordy, says 12 years ago, she was adamant to not have her baby on leap day. She was about three weeks late, and apparently they don't let you go that long anymore. (laughs) Um, And then they said, well, if you don't have her by the end of the month, just come in on the 29th and we'll induce you. And I said, no, I don't want her born on the 29th. They said, don't worry, it'll be after midnight. It'll be March 1st. I said, okay, no problem. But she had other plans. Okay, so did they have to induce you? No, she just let it roll that morning. Del Mar native Ashley Chance says others have always made her birthday special. Growing up, she didn't think much about not being able to celebrate on the actual day. I think I remember like my cousins maybe making fun of me like, oh, you don't have a birthday. But it never really bothered me. And um, my mom, she's always made a big deal about birthdays. And I'm, I'm very grateful to have the parents that I had because they make it an event for us now, even still as an adult. Chance will be 40 this year or 10 in leap years. But her connection to leap day goes even deeper. She also celebrates another occasion on the already rare day. It's my 12th wedding anniversary or it's my third. Chance and her husband eloped in 2012. Otherwise, she would have had to wait another four years for that opportunity. She says she always wanted to get married on her birthday. Her father did the same on his birthday, October 13th, which was a Friday the 13th, the year he was married. We got married and then I showed up to my birthday party and nobody in my family knew it. So we were dressed up like I was in a wedding dress I'd gotten from a thrift shop and he was in a suit and we just showed up and I remember my aunt opening the door and she's like, Ashley's all dressed up. And I was like, yeah, because I got married. Think that's a great story. It's just one of many you can find about Leap Day couples and families, according to the co-founder of the National Society of Leap Day Babies. So I'm Raynell Dawn, the Leap Day Lady. I was born February 29, 1960. So this year, 2024, I will be turning 16, 64. My sweet 16 again. 
Dawn wanted to find others like her and founded a Leap Day birthday club in 1988. In 1997, she came together with Peter Brower, founder of the online club Leap Year Baby Honor Society, and they combined their clubs into one. Dawn says she's met couples who were both born on Leap Day and then got married on the day, too. Mothers with up to three children, all born on consecutive Leap Days, and third-generation Leap Day babies, who have a parent and grandparent with Leap Day birthdays, too. Her mission is to advocate for more Leap Day recognition, leapifying websites for businesses to validate February 29th as an actual date, getting Leap Day capitalized in the dictionary and solidified in ink on the calendar, and to change the narrative that the extra day is a nuisance or a burden. As recent as 2020, parents were asked by the doctor, the nurse, the hospital staff, what date do you want me to put on your baby's birth certificate? The 28th or the 1st? You don't want your baby growing up without a birthday, do you? You know, or the parent would ask the hospital staff, I don't want my baby to grow up without a birthday. Please put February 28th or March 1st. And they did. And that's illegal. Their heart is in the right place. Their brain is committing illegal stuff. You don't change the birth certificate of a human being. Dawn says despite her family's efforts, she still felt left out and was teased by her classmates as a kid. But when she was older, she learned the history of Leap Day and its importance, a necessary date to keep track of time. A day that represents balance and harmony. It's not connected to a religion. It's not connected to a government. It's not a holy day. It's everyone's extra day, and I encourage everyone to use their extra day wisely. Do something good with it. For Leap Day babies, that means celebrating with family, going or doing something new and fun, or hitting all the Leap Day sales on a shopping trip. For Ellen Green at MOT Charter, who is turning 60 next week, it just means going to work. I love to come to work on my birthday. So we just, um, and I work in a school, and the kids always make it special for me on that, on that day. For Delaware Public Media, I'm Rachel Sawicki. Thanks to our Rachel Sawicki for enlightening us this week, and uh, happy early birthday to all those leaplings out there. And that's a wrap on this edition of The Green. The stories and interviews you've heard are online right now at DelawarePublic.org. Just head to The Green's page on our website, and there you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter by clicking Newsletters at the top of the page. And remember, The Green is also available via podcast at our website, as well as Apple Podcasts, the NPR, and Delaware Public Media apps. We'd also love to hear from you. Give us your feedback and story ideas on our Facebook page or by emailing us at thegreen at delawarepublic.org. And a big thanks to Delaware Public Media's Tom Byrne and Rachel Sawicki for helping make this week's show possible. For them and the rest of the staff here at Delaware Public Media, I'm Kyle McKinnon saying thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again next week on The Green, where Delawareans get tuned in to a first state of mind.